0: The rest of us are going to turn to the last chapter in the book, the letter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 993. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. You've heard me say before, I'll just remind you that grace is not unconditional acceptance. It's undeserved acceptance. It's undeserved acceptance. My teaching on that got me kicked out of one ministerial association (laughs) because they wanted to accept everyone as they are without repentance and faith. It's remarkable, actually, that the church exists uh, because, of course, the church is made up of sinners uh, needing the grace, abiding grace. And it seems like um, we get older or, or grow up, and sometimes our sins... Haunt us, and sometimes we get worse in sin. Right, and sometimes in leadership positions, our sin casts greater shadows. Uh, and Paul is writing in uh, to a church in Ephesus. Uh, actually, Ephesus is a rather large cosmopolitan city, and he has been ministering the Apostle Paul uh, to this like hub of the early church for some time. I think he first uh, uh, encountered the the Christians in Ephesus, the early church. He did not plant the church in Ephesus. Paul himself, that had happened by God's grace um, earlier than his ministry. But the first time he visited was around 51 AD on an overnight I uh, had a one-off uh, sermon, but that was a neat sermon to hear as the Apostle Paul distilled uh, Romans into one sermon, maybe, uh, the whole book of Romans. And then uh, later on, around 57 uh, AD, as he's on his way back to Jerusalem for a feast time wherein he will be arrested and sent into prison, he has a, a very short uh, stopover in, uh, in fact, a little port town called Miletus. Uh, and, uh, and asks the elders of the church, the churches in Ephesus, to come down. He gives them this encouragement, this uh, admonishment, reminding them, or even revealing to them, maybe for the first time, that, that there are fierce wolves among them that will ravage the early church, that will ravage the flock. Uh, And that's uh, partly and mainly why he's written now to Timothy, his delegate. And and Timothy seems like an amazing young man, that the Lord is raised up and anointed for a certain ministry. It must have been very difficult to be uh, in his shoes, uh, to be called to exhort and even to rebuke and to uh, cut off. Uh, even men older than himself, uh, mothers in the faith, fathers in the faith who are uh, heading the wrong direction. And here he is, he's now being stiffened in his spine and encouraged by the Apostle Paul as Timothy is given these words uh, about uh, covetousness at the very end of chapter, chapter 6. He's being uh, called uh, to uh, cut off uh, some false teaching and to correct some things. So I'm going to read all of chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and then we're going to look at the first half. This is the... uh, they got two sermons left on uh, Timothy's letter. This is the second to last. So uh, let's just ask God's grace uh, and open our hearts, our minds, our ears. Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants Anyone teaches a different doctrine and does, that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray, Father. Um, wow, your, your word is like a double edged sword. Even in reading it just now, the conviction of your spirit on my own heart, uh, we do not want to serve ourselves and have selfish gain. We don't want to seek ourselves or our names or anything like that. We desire that you would get your way in our lives because your way is always good and best. You are a better manager of our affairs than any one of us or all of us put together. We thank you for every good gift. You know we have, some of us, been praying fervently for rain, and you have blessed us with a half inch or so last night. We honor you and thank you. Really, we depend on you for life. We really do, physically and definitely, spiritually. We are so, so grateful that you have opened the eyes of many of us to see the grace that surpasses understanding this amazing thing that has happened in the cross. Grant to us now a fresh appreciation and application of this grace in our lives and how we manage our own hearts with regard to what we aspire and desire, uh, that we might have like what Paul says here to Timothy, his protege, godliness with contentment. Apart from a work of your spirit, we will see no improvement, but with my God, we can scale a wall and break the hardest of hearts. For Christ's sake, amen. Godliness uh, with contentment is great gain. verse 6, that's the the concept, I guess the key concept I want to sort of sit on for a while this morning, talking about godliness with contentment. Contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And they said in the verse before that something different, that they were thinking about gain, but they were thinking about gain in a different manner. Verse 5 imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They're thinking personal gain, right? They're thinking of selfish gain. They're thinking of promoting myself. He is thinking of a different kind of gain, the gain for the church, the gain for the glory of Christ, the gain in eternal ways, like he says later, uh, lay hold of things that are truly life if you're rich, right? Use your stuff in ways that are truly a a net benefit or a gain uh, for yourself eternally. Uh, for for those around you and uh, for Christ's glory. Godliness with contentment apparently was something that those early Christians uh, in Ephesus were struggling with. Uh, I'm sure we can't relate, (laughs) right? No, we, we can relate to needing godliness and needing contentment and to combine those two things and what in the world that... Might mean it's kind of interesting as we think about money and there's that you know it's the American idea is not a new idea. This suspicion that most of our problems would be solved with enough cash. Right? <laughs> if we just had a little bit more, we would have most of our problems could be addressed. Uh, and the thing of it is, our hearts are twisted. And I once sat through a, a, a lecture by uh, Dr. Victor Clark, I think it was, and uh, he it was called "Envy and Its Discontents" was the title of his lecture, which immediately snapped. One of those, you know, things that pastors go to, and, and he brought up this one point I thought was kind of interesting. That during the Cultural Revolution that occurred in China in the last half, about a, a couple generations ago, in the early mid 1900s, that in the name of fairness, when they reallocated the farms to the various peoples. Uh, and, and some people were frustrated because they got a farm that didn't have fruit trees. And so the, the communists uh, had a very simple solution. They just cut down all the fruit trees and therefore enforced equality amongst the people. Brilliant, right? Not so brilliant, right? Not so brilliant. Uh, the bottom line, and we could say, all oh, those people over there out to lunch, is not discontent deeply embedded in the human condition? And we will go sometimes to great lengths uh, to, to embarrass or, or to, to deplatform or, or to whatever uh, those that we are envious uh, and coveting the stuff that they have. We have a root, de- root disease in our hearts that we're talking about this morning, and that is discontent. The reason that the, uh, this, these false teachers, and it seems to me that there's always a fresh crop of weeds. Amen? <laughs> there's always a fresh crop of weeds in your garden, and there's always a fresh crop of false teachers in the church. You, we'll never be done. It'll, we'll never reach that age until Christ returns where we don't need to apply 1 Timothy and chapter 6 as well. It, it just keeps coming back up. And you might be frustrated, like, what's the point? Just barge off, abandon the church. If he's always going to have false teachers, always people who are uh, sort of sabotaging, what's the point? Uh, No, the point is you have to press close to Christ. He alone and his word alone is your only salvation and safety. Discontent with one's circumstances. I want to look at three things that they were discontented about. It seems that they were discontented about their significance, discontented about their station in life, and discontent, discontented about their stuff. Significance, station, and stuff. If you didn't figure it out, that's an outline with three S's. <laughs> discontented with station, with significance with uh, station and stuff. Look at verse 1 and 2 again with me. It says this, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since... Those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the third of a honor someone who's often overlooked. Uh, In this case, it's it's honor those who are over you. Your masters, your employers, your boss, you might say. The ones you respond to, report to. Previously in chapter 5, we were to honor the widow. We've talked about that. We're also to honor those uh, who are the preachers and teachers of the word. A double honor, he says that there in 1 Timothy 5 in that last paragraph. But here today, we're looking at honoring those who are over us in the Lord. And the Greek word is doulos, you've heard perhaps before it's the word slave. In the ESV it's translated bond servant most often. Why? Well, I looked it up in the preface. Most of you, if you have any SV, you can flip to the beginning right before Genesis. They give you a, a translator's uh, sort of um, description of why they make certain judgment calls in, in, in uh, explaining the Hebrew and Greek in, in certain English ways. And this is what it says, that in, the, in our context here in the West, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing race-based institution of slavery that we've known here in the 19th century America. The, the situation that Ephesus is facing, about a third of the people that, Paul, that Paul's writing to all are, are themselves slaves. But bond is a, a better term because, if I can oversimplify it this way, the servants, the people that, Paul, that Paul's writing to, uh, on the one hand, have less liberty than you and I do. Because if we get grumbly about our boss, we can always just try to find another job, right? They don't have that liberty. But they do have greater liberty than the slaves that we understood in American history, different kinds of liberty. They, could, they had the hope of getting out of slavery. They had the hope of actually owning a slave, could own other slaves. It's, it's a different dynamic, and it wasn't race-based by any means. It was often even an economic uh, step forward, uh, depending on which house you were joining. So I'm not going to get into all that deal. That's a different time for us to look at this issue of, of slavery. But I think we can relate to something, that when you find yourself in a situation where you're subject to another person... Where someone's over you, you must guard your heart against discontentment. Let me say that again. When you find yourself in a situation where someone's over you, you must, as a Christian, guard your heart against discontentment. There's not a person in this room who hasn't had to do something in the house, a chore as a child or getting paid $4 an hour outside the house, or whatever you actually get paid, where you did not suppose in your mind, I know better than my boss what should be done. (laughs) Right? I'm not going to make a show of hands. All of us have said at one point or another, if I was the boss, (laughs) right? Maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe you are wiser. Maybe you're being groomed and prepared to be the boss, to do the next thing. Perhaps, but don't be discontented where God has placed you. Even should it be in this difficult position of being a bond servant, uh, and even if there's the really difficult condition of being in a bond servant with a master, whose system and structure and, and, and maybe enterprise is something you're not necessarily thrilled to be part of, there's no place in the Christian employee's life for subtle insubordination toward our employers. Uh, to those, there's no way of being, it's not right to be sort of cleverly concealing our contempt for them uh, and mocking them with our, and our humor and that sort of thing. Uh, our systems, sometimes in our systems, we seem small. But we don't have to change to be a difference maker. Here it says it in 1 Timothy 6, just two or three pages back, in Titus chapter 2, another delegate at the same time period Paul's writing to Titus, who was like Timothy sent to a difficult a situation that needed elders and needed uh, things reset. In Titus 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, it describes uh, the same sort of situations, bondservants servants and masters, this way. Bondservants, servants, writes Paul to, Timoth- to Titus, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that... In everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that, that they may adorn clothe, decorate the doctrine of God our Savior. What He's really revealing that in Christ now, everything that you do, how you work, why you work, the motivations, the heart attitude, the body language with which you work, are, are, are decorating, are saying something about how you know Christ and how it is to be transformed by Christ. I remember I read about an employer who said, who put it this way, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good of those Christians. You ever heard that? He's so heavenly minded. He's no earthly good. He, on all his breaks, he's reading the Bible or talking about Jesus. And then not only on the breaks, for some reason they spill in. and He never shows up on time to the machine. It's just like always oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He never gets his job done. That doesn't honor God. There's a place for sharing the gospel and a time. And you shouldn't be doing it on your employer's Dime, unless you work for Jesus, that's what pastors do. (laughs) It's always appropriate to share the gospel. You just got to find the right place and time, uh, you know, if you understand what I'm saying. And everything that they may adorn the doctrine of God or Savior. And it's not just work that's, you know, you get paid for. I mean, I, every year around Mother's Day comes out the stat like the most valuable employees on the planet are mothers. Right? They save oodles, oodles of money. They never stop working because all of our work is not always you know remunerated. We all have work, but how do you work? Do you work with a grumbly spirit, or is there? Are you adorning the gospel? Your the gospel of Christ and how you you work in the home, in the garden, at your workplace, in the secular world, whatever. How are you putting clothing or covering? covering on Christ. What kind of attitude or work ethic? Now I'm going to turn to this little book. I just, I shared it with one of my brothers who's an entrepreneur in our church and the other day and just, we had a great chuckle about it because um, uh, because Spurgeon has such a poetic way and he's talking about work. He's talking about laboring and it's, I'm going to read on page six. I'm telling you that because there, I think there might be a copy of this here thing in, in our church library. This is my copy. You can't have it, but uh, <laughs> There are a few books I don't share because I mark them up so thoroughly. If you can see with the camera, you'll see I have a lot of quotes. Here at page six, I love this description. It's so vivid. When I'm set to work with some men, I'd as soon as drive a team of snails (laughs) or go out rabbit hunting with a dead ferret. Why, you just might as soon get blood out of a fence post or juice from a cork. Then work out of some of them, yet they're always talking about their rights. Is the human condition any changed? He's writing in the late 1800, in the mid, mid to late 1800s. This is uh, Spurgeon's practical wisdom or plain advice for plain people to go on. I just, I just get a chuckle out of this. I would as soon drop my halfpenny down a well as pay some people for pretending to work who only fidget you and make your flesh to crawl to see them all day creeping over a cabbage leaf. <laughs> Everyone, anyone, anyone here ever worked with someone who seemed to be creeping over a cabbage leaf? <laughs> You're chocolate, because you can relate. Maybe there's a, suddenly an image of a person's face. I don't know. May it never be that if as a Christian that someone would look upon you and say, look at the pace he's going at. She's going out creeping over a cabbage leaf. No, no, no. In Christ, he has shown great grace to us. And that means that ought to modify or or at least redeem the pace at which a Christian works, the uh, sort of the heart posture at which we work as a Christian. And uh, the pleasure of Christ is now our goal. We're seeking to promote the gospel and how we work. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, uh, as we are working, the employers would say, man, oh man, whatever has gripped a Christian, they're such dependable, hard workers. We need to find some more Christians in our in our workplace. Uh, That would be the thing. That would mean that we would understand what it is to be gripped by the grace of Christ. Titus chapter two says, You do all these so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. In our own passage, chapter six, verse one, we're doing this way, we're working this way, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. May not be reviled. Earlier, uh, Paul had written to the church in Ephesus on page 979 there in the Bible. It's just a few pages back in yours. Ephesians is the letter he wrote only a half dozen or so years, four or five, six, something like that. Uh, He wrote, and apparently they really were struggling with this area of... Work as unto Christ, because he brings it up now here, uh, and also previously he needed to repeat himself. So, this is right before that marvelous description of the armor of God. Uh, he's talking to bondservants, those who are working and how they ought to work in this way Ephesians 6, verse 5 Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service. You know what he's talking about, those who suddenly pick up the pace when the boss is noticing or working, but is as slow as a team of snails when the boss ain't around. That's what he's talking about, eye service or as people pleasers. But you should work as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this He will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. I love the hope that that sentence means. You know what that means when it says, knowing that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That means Jesus is always paying attention. And how you do the dishes, if mom and dad aren't around, it doesn't matter in a way. Christ is noticing, and maybe your dad will never appreciate you, your mom will never notice how well you did. Jesus will. Isn't that wonderful? That means you don't, you don't have to labor under that constant waiting for you know, approval. That is irrelevant. Your approval comes from Christ, right? And, and it says here that he, you will receive back from the Lord, whether you're a bondservant or slave or free. Wonderful. You're, the situation of your, your work in this system, we'll call it, is irrelevant. Not in the scheme in which God sends things. In the providence of God, you are who you are. You are where you are. The bottom line is none of us own Amazon.com in this room. We just aren't called to that, right? I like what Spurgeon says later. He says, the small stove only, here's the blessing of having a small stove. You only need a little bit of wood to heat it. You don't need a whole forest, right? Uh, You only need a little bit. There's a blessing in being a little person with little responsibilities, and if, if you're uh, aspiring for more, just be careful uh, and seek the Lord in all these things. Leadership in the, First Timothy, he lays out who is called it's, it's to be the, in the role of elder. And it's very clearly those who are, it's character, not position. It's not significance or station or stuff that is driving those who are to lead and teach. And that's part of the problem is you have these false teachers who are not only discontented with their significance, they're clearly discontented with their particular station in the church. Look at verse 2 and 3 it says this teach and urge these things If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does that does and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ the teaching that accords with godliness he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing nothing. Well, why are they, why are these, it's clearly he's wrapping his whole letter because in chapter one, verse three, the same word, it's an unusual word, Word I think it might only be used twice in the Bible here at the beginning of first Timothy and then second at the end of first Timothy, a different doctrine, verse three of chapter one, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Timothy, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So here he is wrapping up his whole presentation. And throughout the letter we've been studying it, he's been clear, he's been talking about what is this false structure and who, he even names some names sometimes. Who are these false teachers? How are they going about it? Here at the very end he's explaining why they're doing this, what their underlying motivation is. And it's laid out so simple, so clear. It's in verse 5. These folks imagined that godliness is a means of gain. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain, personal gain, selfish gain. They're, they're looking for something. They're, 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 how would I say it this way? They, they, he exposes the discontent actually in their heart. Uh, why are these people so religious? Why are they trying to impress other people and have their say? Because they're seeking their gain, not the gain of the church nor the gain of Christ. They're looking for religious, I guess, gain. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a, doc, a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness, they have been deviating from the gospel. And what is that gospel? Repent and believe. Why do they deviate from that? Why do they look for something extra, something more? Well, it's so simple. A child gets it, right? Repent and believe. You don't, I keep saying, you don't graduate from the gospel, You know how hard it is to come up every Sunday and say the same thing? (laughs) Eventually, you're like, this is getting weary. But you don't graduate from the gospel. When you think you do, you are in deep trouble. You are in deep trouble if you're doing this for something else, if you're going to the next degree with special knowledge, special this, special power. No, no, no. It's a simple message. Repent and believe. And the discontented, apparently, are quite upset with the gospel. They're not satisfied with it. They have to move on to something more. Because in such a system where it's all about Christ at the center, and that, the, as I have said also, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Slave, free, man, woman, child, all are sinners in need of the grace of Christ, needing his blood to cover them. No matter the situation or story. So we're all at the same level in that regard. And so because that's the case, you really can't elbow each other out of the way and sort of build a hierarchy, as it were. In fact, the hierarchy, if there is one in the church, is inverted. The elders and deacons serve others, you know, that the saints may uh, do the work of ministry. You see that? So it's a strange thing. What they are wanting to do is to be people who have something to say. The results of this is so clear, verse 4 and 5, how the character of these false teachers, the results, the, the things that they produce, and Jesus warns us and tells us in places that you'll determine a tree, even regarding false teachers, you know a tree by its fruit. So you look at what's happening around that person who claims power and claims to know God and claims to be able to explain the Bible or whatever. You look at the fruits, because sometimes they're obvious and sometimes they come after the fact, but there's always something that they produce. What are they producing? Look at this, verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce five rotten, horrible things, envy, dissension, Slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. There's nothing more toxic than a community where there's constant friction among people. Can you imagine gardening where there's constant friction between your children with your wife and you? Can you imagine doing anything where there's constant friction? You just can't seem to get anywhere that's what they're creating. They're developing a space where by promoting themselves, they're giving cover for others around them to also promote themselves, and everyone starts seeking their own gain. So Paul's at his wit's end. In fact, he says in a different place, I'm sending Timothy because there's no one like him who seeks the gain of Christ and not himself, who really is in it for you, who wants you to be blessed. That's the kind of guy Timothy is. That's the kind of guy that you and I are uh, to be as well. You know a tree by its fruit, and its, we're in a spiritual battle. I mentioned Ephesians 6. It says that our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The friction-producing elements, they're just been duped by a different enemy, right? The devil. 1 Timothy 1.18, in fact, Paul, at the very beginning of his letter, he outs a couple of guys, but it's interesting what he says about them, this Hymenaeus and Alexander. They've made shipwreck their faith. Chapter 1, verse 20, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I've handed them over to Satan. That sounds kind of cruel, but actually what Paul's saying is, I release them to their actual masters. I release them to their actual masters. Anyone who's struggling with the shininess of significance or status or wealth or stuff, if if, if an authority in your life, an apostle, or even worse, the Lord God, were to release you to your actual master, does that not give you chills? It should. But if you know Christ... If he's your master, to know your master better is a blessing. I mean, if he's going to prune a few things, bring it. If only to draw nearer to such an awesome master. When Paul writes, he uses that word doulos or slave or bondservant of himself constantly at the beginning of his letters. Why? Because he delights to be beholden to Jesus Christ. He wants to know him better. He wants to be nearer. He wants to work in sync with him. He wants to labor with him, and he's glad to do so. Can the church actually be so infiltrated by, uh, and sabotaged that they actually become a mouthpiece of Satan? Could that even be possible? Well, it is here in our town, <laughs> in our time. How is that possible? I would have said 30 years ago, I can't imagine that that day would be where It wasn't just an intramural discussion, but actually the, in the name of Christ, people would be promoting Romans 1, what he warned against when the wrath of God would come. How, how could that be? Verse 5 says, how do they have such, uh, such room for their ministries, such room for their households to be twisted and corrupted? It's in this manner. They're, paying, they're, they're pandering to those who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, who like them imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Depraved in mind, deprived of truth, they've rejected God, they've rejected the truth, they put themselves in the place of God, they think God's just their lackey, and everything he does is sprinkle holy water or blessings upon them pursuing themselves, so only they may gain. And so they've become futile in their thinking, displacing God or Christ at the center. And it says in Romans 1 that their foolish hearts are now darkened. And we are living in that time, aren't we? And it all, at the root, is discontent. They're discontented. The only way to be contented is with godliness. Look at that. Again, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. The the key bit about contentment is this, that Christ might get his way. That the glory of God might surpass your pleasures, your, your whatever, your situation. When you are really desiring that God be glorified, you have this incredible blessing. You suddenly get not only godliness, but contentment with it. Because Christ will be glorified. Even in the setbacks in the church, and our society, we know that one day he will come back. The one in, un- in unappro- unapproachable light is described there, and I'll talk about this next week. He's going to come back, and every knee will bow. He will win. Now, that, I know that means we have actual losses, actual setbacks. Hurts that are hard to swallow, especially when it's a loved one who's departed from the willing the way of God, the way of Christ. What uh, we pray that they would re- be restored unto Him, as we desire to to follow uh, quickly or soon after the heels of Christ. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I like uh, the New America Standard version; it rarely adds extra words in its translation to the Greek, but this time it does, and I think to good effect. It says this in verse six: Its translation is. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. What does that mean? It means that godliness is not some back door to getting gain, to getting rich. And now he brings up the wealth thing. Because we all believe at a deep level as human beings, like George Bernard Shaw said, that it's the lack of money that is the root of all evil. He didn't know his Bible. Or maybe he knew it enough to play off of it and just to be that deceived, I suppose. The lack of money is the root of all evil, said George Bernard Shaw. But is that what the scripture says? No. No, it does not say that. Let's look at it carefully so that you don't miss this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7 now. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, or the Greek is food and covering, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pierced themselves. That reminds The pierces are rather vivid. They've impaled themselves on these ideas, these things. Matthew in chapter 13 records uh, what Jesus said about these piercings with wealth. Matthew 13, 20. Here it is. He's talking about the four soils. And one of the soils is the good seed. God's word was, was sown amongst uh, the, the weeds, amongst the thorns. And it says he, he says this, means, this is what that means. As uh, for what? The word of God that was sown among thorns. This is the person who hears God's word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Haven't you seen so many of the, the, the weeds are piercing weeds. They have thorns and, and abrasive leaves. And they push out the good, gentle, wonderful, delicious things that we call vegetables, right? They're piercing. They're pushing. They're, they're driving it out. And saying that if you have a love for money, if that's really what you're out after, gain, you're bringing something into your life that will ruin you. Henry Fielding put it this way, make money your God and it will plague you like the devil. Make money your God, it will plague you like the devil. St. Augustine said almost 1,700, 1,800 years ago, if you are the master of money, you can do good with it, but if you are the slave of money, it will do evil with you. It will do evil with you. I have just enough time to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Do you want to read another funny one? I, I like Charles Virgin. <laughs> He's a sharp-witted guy. All right, you're, you're, you're at my mercy. Here we go, page 30. <laughs> I, I'm glad you're laughing. You're either t- laughing at my expense or because you want to hear it as well. Here we go. Uh, we expect more fruit from an apple tree than from a thorn. We have rights to do so. The disciples of a patient Savior should be patient themselves. Grin and bear it is the old-fashioned advice, but sing and bear it is a great deal better. Isn't that beautiful? Grin and bear it is what you hear. Even the world, they say that. But sing and bear it. That's why someone asked me recently, why do you all sing all the time? When you know what Jesus has done, how can you keep silent? You must give expression to what he's done for you. Okay, that's not Spurgeon. That's me. Keep going. Uh, One last thing. To, the, to be poor is not always pleasant, but worse things than that happen at sea. <laughs> I love what he, it just makes you think, like, and everywhere else, that's his point, right? <laughs> small shoes are apt to pinch, but not if you have a small foot. <laughs> Some of you ladies are wondering what you do to fashion with your feet, I understand. But small shoes are apt to pinch, but if you have a small, not if you have a small foot. If you have little means, it will be well to have a little desires. Little desires. Poverty is no shame, but being discontented with it is. And that's where he goes in a minute, and Paul does, that even you can be discontented with wealth too, if you are rich. In some things, the poor are better off than the rich, for if a poor man has to seek meat for his stomach, he is more likely to get what he's after than the rich man who has to seek for a stomach for his meat. <laughs> Do you understand? It's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. I just finished with the words, because we historically are amongst the rich, historically in our time. All of us in this room have more than, than most. Many of us have little slaves in our kitchens that do our dishes for us, called dishwashers, right? It's amazing. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Who would trade gilded toys of dust for true life, right? John seventeen three. 3, Jesus said, this is life to know me, the one that God sent. He is the God. He's unapproachable light. Whatever shiny thing captures your attention, I guarantee you this, it will be not impressive when Jesus comes on the scene. When he comes, it, puts, it scales everything differently because he is the one who dwells in unapproachable light, who is himself radiant, who is life. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and wrath destroy <clears throat> but where, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for your tre- yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who brings such clarity to us. And we thank you, God, that you don't have to change our circumstances for us to matter. But whatever next task that everyone in the sound of my voice has, uh, heating food in a microwave, washing a plate, driving a load to the Virginias or something, I have no idea. Whatever tasks we have, when we do them unto Christ, you see and you, you, you count and you notice. Grant that our attitudes and our labor might so befit what is someone who's captured by the grace of Christ that others would say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I'm in. Let's go. Would you bless our witness? I pray for a week from today that you give us grace in proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and as there will be those who will be hearing, and some of them overhearing from their porches nearby, or as they walk their dogs during the service, that you, oh God, would uh, arrange providential meetings, divine appointments, that... Perhaps one or many will accidentally hear about Jesus, who is the hope of eternal life, who alone covers all sins. Oh, that grace may abound in our time, in our generation, and that we may be able to join the saints who've gone before and those who will come after and say, God is good. Christ's name.